This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Riley. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. When I think about the fact that we can be creating another six plus million jobs for Americans by investing in these Latino entrepreneurs, we can be creating greater products and services to benefit the needs of American consumers, not just Latino consumers. It is an exciting opportunity to drive that stronger American economy. That was senior partner Lucy Perez. She's here to share insights from our inaugural report about the economic state of Latinos in America. After, we'll hear from Nimit Patel. He's a data scientist who, when he got to McKinsey, was encouraged to take a random walk. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much, Roberta. Really looking forward to the conversation. So we're here to talk about the economic state of Latinos in America based on a McKinsey research report. I know you have a personal connection to some of this research as your father owned and ran a few restaurants. How does your dad's experience compare to today's generation of Latino entrepreneurs? Indeed, the subject of this report is something that is very personal to me. One of the statistics that most surprised me when we were looking into the data was the fact that one in 200 Latinos open a new business each month. That is the highest degree of entrepreneurship that you see in any demographic group in the U.S. And it was striking to me to think that my dad was one of those Latinos opening new businesses. You know, I was the first one in my dad's family to go to college. And that was possible because of the growth and opportunity, right, that my dad was able to create for us through his business. As we dug into the data, we also learned about how 72% of Latino entrepreneurs rely only on friends and family to support their businesses. That was the story for my dad and so many of his friends. When you think about the potential opportunity to invest in these entrepreneurs, to grow and have just a stronger American economy for all, it's a very exciting story. The story has so many hopeful elements to it, but the report also points out that it's complicated. Oftentimes, we talk about these very positive trends, like Latinos have the highest degree of entrepreneurship, or Latinos have a higher labor force participation rate than non-Latino whites, or Latinos have increasing consumption power. But what these rosy indicators sometimes mask is how fragile this growth is. And if we invest in these entrepreneurs, if we invest in these workers, if we invest in these communities, we can drive a stronger American economy for all. And so it is personal, but it's also about our society as a whole. I think what's most practical and accessible about the report is that you've organized it around Latino workers, Latino business owners, consumers, savers, and investors. I'm curious to hear about the challenges for each of these groups, challenges and opportunities. Let's start with a Latino worker. How are we compensating workers currently? Today in the U.S., Latinos make up about 17% of the workforce. When we look at the numbers, what we see is that On average, Latinos are paid 73 cents for every dollar that is paid to non-Latino white workers. 
If we were able to close this wage disparity, we would be talking about an additional $288 billion that would be supporting Latino workers. This could help move more than a million Latino families into middle-class standing. In high-earning professions, if we were able to close the representation gap that exists in professions like academia, STEM-related careers, careers requiring a professional degree, we could already close half of this $288 billion. But the truth is that today, a large number of Latino workers are concentrated in low-paying jobs. By 2060, 30% of the U.S. labor force will be Latino. It becomes all the more paramount to think about how do we make sure that these 30% of American workers have the right conditions to succeed not only for themselves, but also for their families. What can companies do or what are they already doing to bring in more Latino workers? We find ourselves in a moment where there is such a great demand for talent. Supply is not catching up. So many of the questions are, how can we tap into broader talent pools? What we're seeing with organizations is that they're looking at how to increase representation in their workforce at different levels. From the very top, we're seeing an increase in diversity in board composition. That representation at the board level still significantly lags for Latino leaders. We are seeing this increase in recruiting targets for more diverse hiring in the entry-level positions. What's also interesting is how companies are choosing to invest in helping advance and promote workers through their different career levels. The other thing that we have seen many of our clients do is establish partnerships with institutions that for example, tend to have a higher proportion of Latino students and creating internships and other vehicles to create an easier path into the workforce and expand their talent pool. Another clear area of opportunity is as we think about hiring for jobs, how to do more skills-based hiring versus degree-based hiring. We see increasingly people learning skills in context outside of academic degrees that can be extremely valuable. Generally speaking, how are today's Latino youth faring economically compared to their parents? For Latinos, the concept of the American dream is ingrained in who they are. And this idea that the children do better than the parents. And when we were looking to see, do the facts support this? Indeed, what we see is that Latinos in general have rates of intergenerational mobility that are comparable to those of the white population. So the number of Latino-owned companies has grown over the past five years at more than double the rate of white-owned firms, yet they still don't have access to the same levels of capital. So what's going on with that? Latinos are well known for their entrepreneurship. One of the things that we learned about Latino entrepreneurs is that they tend to have narrower networks, more focused on family and friends. At the same time, when we look at private equity, venture capitalists, they're investing less than 5% of their capital on Latino-owned business firms. So we have clearly an opportunity here to connect the dots between this growing number of entrepreneurs and those investors. We saw with one of our clients who's a financial institution to make a dedicated customer offering for these entrepreneurs to drive greater growth in small businesses owned by Latinos 
And that has turned into a significant vector for growth for that banking institution, so much so that the CEO spoke of Latinos as their hidden growth opportunity in several of his communications to employees. I want to shift our focus now to the Latino consumer, another segment in the report. In the report, we note that while consumption among Latinos in the United States has grown about 6% per year for the past eight years, there's still this $660 billion in unmet demand each year. Why such a huge number? What's accounting for that? The consumption gap that exists today is quite significant. Those $660 billion are the result of a couple of factors. On one hand, it is about missing the goods and services that meet their needs, not having those accessible, for example, in the neighborhoods that they live in. We know that Latinos are more likely to live in what we call healthcare deserts or banking deserts. This would be areas where the provision and availability of healthcare or banking services, for example, is lower and they may be spending more on average, for example, to secure housing in these areas. So that's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is that the willingness to pay for the goods and services is very different for Latinos relative to other groups. And what we find is there are certain categories where Latinos would be willing to pay more should they find the right provision to their needs and services. So are there specific first steps that companies and government organizations can take to help improve the situation or close that gap? There are several steps that can be taken to to close that consumption gap. One is focusing on the consumer insights that, for example, organizations have and understanding, particularly as we see this population continuing to growth, right? One in four Americans will be Latino by 2050. How well do we understand this group, their needs and preferences, and are we designing products and services to meet those needs and preferences? The second is then thinking about how are those goods and services being provided? Do we have mechanisms to meet these consumers where they are at, right? How are we choosing to place our locations in geographies that would make them more accessible to these consumers? That would be another part of the equation. Lucy, in the report, you also talk about the opportunity in Latino wealth creation. Latino wealth is on an upward trajectory, but there's still lots of ground to cover. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about any resources emerging or this notion of creating more inclusive financial literacy. The trajectory on Latino wealth creation is one that is positive. But the challenge, again, is that we're starting from such a small base when we look at this population. The median net worth of a Latino family is only about $36,000. When you compare that to what it is for a non-Latino white family, that's almost five times that, right? Closer to $200,000. What drives the majority of this gap is inheritance or intergenerational transfers, right? How much wealth is passed from one generation to the next? And we see a much lower rate of that happening for Latinos because of this inability to accumulate wealth that in and of itself is also driven by those lower wages that we were talking about for the workers, right? The other factor that contributes to this lesser ability to have intergenerational wealth is a lower participation in the stock market. Less than 
5% of Latino families have direct holdings of stocks. And when you think about how much wealth has been created, for example, even over the past decade or two, this is a vehicle that Latino families have not been able to tap into as much as other demographic groups. And just on this last point, Lucy, around Latino savers and investors, are there good resources emerging that we could point listeners to? On one hand, for example, you have financial institutions who are investing a lot more in building educational content and making resources available, particularly online, around how to access capital, how to save, how to invest. That is one part of the equation. We're also seeing, for example, community groups really investing behind educating in the societies where they operate and offering courses bringing people together, facilitating exchanges of best practices. You're seeing increasingly also an interest from policymakers to shift more resources towards these underrepresented groups and making it easier for them to tap into capital opportunities, for example. And so there are a lot of different resources. They may not always be as accessible to the people who need them. And by accessible, meaning not just physically accessible, but in a way that it's easy to understand and act on at the right time. What is the broader macroeconomic opportunity that we're looking at here? So to me, the key part of this report is that this is an opportunity for America. This is not about a Latino issue that we need to solve just for Latinos. This is a great opportunity for a stronger economy. When I think about the fact that we can be creating another six plus million jobs for Americans by investing in these Latino entrepreneurs, we can be creating greater products and services to benefit the needs of American consumers, not just Latino consumers. It is an exciting opportunity to drive that stronger American economy. So, Lucy, this is the first report of its kind at McKinsey. What questions would you like to tackle in the next go-round? We chose to focus on this first report in understanding the overall frame around wealth creation and how these different roles play off each other, as well as really bringing in new data to understand that Latinos are not a monolith, right? And what could be the differences between different groups of Latinos, be it because of what generation they represent in the U.S. or their country of origin. In particular, really recognize what are the ways that we can better serve that Latino consumer, that we can drive some of that growth that we were talking about, closing that $660 billion consumer spending gap that we see for this community. What would it take to unleash Latino entrepreneurship at scale and drive investment dollars towards this Latino entrepreneurs so that they can create this additional American jobs and a broader sets of goods and services to benefit the community? Lucy, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Roberta. And now let's hear from data scientist Nimit Patel. Thank you. 
what I do is I build machine learning and data science models for clients in different industries. And lately, I focus on heavy industries, which is what we call gym. So it's global energy and materials. The type of clients I would help is power plants, chemical plants, heavy industrial processes, and how we can use data science and machine learning artificial intelligence to optimize those heavy industrial processes. Since the last one and a half years, I'm based in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, it's a much more closely knit family or community type office where everybody knows each other's names, daughters' names, nephews' names, etc. During my undergraduate, I was doing in mechanical engineering in India. And towards the latter half of it, that's when I realized that mechanical engineering is not something that I want to do as a career for the rest of my life. The eventual goal was to gain my master's and then apply that experience in something much more pragmatic and get some work experience in the US. Even early years of McKinsey, I did what we sort of called a random walk, where the idea is you work on different domains. Majority of my focus was through a process of elimination, figure out what I don't want to do for the rest of my life and make a more informed choice on what I want to do or what I would be happy doing for a much longer and sustained period of my life. About the history of McKinsey, the one thing that strikes me the most is how they've adapted over time. For example, the most recent wave of analytics and machine learning and computer science being something that everybody's anchored in and you know every business is anchored in data mckinsey has adapted to it and started moving away from the traditional strategic consulting or traditional ways of you know, just providing consulting to the leadership in an organization from for a client and moving towards a more technology-driven company acquiring companies like quantum black and creating that expertise-based paths Recently, I was on a project where we were working to help a power plant company. They were a power generation company. We are helping them to optimize their processes through analytics. And what we help them do is build models where the models, of course, help you understand how fast an equipment is going to degrade and when it would require maintenance and also understand how the maintenance of our equipment will affect the efficiency of the overall power plant. So it was exciting because I think I could see the real world implications of it in that time period itself and how we are able to help a company navigate these changing market conditions and still use data to probably make smarter decisions was very exciting. As I look back over my time at McKinsey, now that I've been five years here, my biggest takeaway is never be afraid to say yes to something, even if you don't know how to do it. It's always possible to know or figure it out over the fly while you're actually solving the problem. And over time, I think I just got more comfortable doing it because nobody expects you to know everything about everything. I can say that I did have that support network, which was there to support me if things went sideways. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks. 